Marvin Goldfried is a distinguished professor of psychology at Stony Brook University, where he helped develop the graduate program in clinical psychology. He's the co-founder of the Society for the Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration. Alan Francis is a professor of psychiatry and chair emeritus at Duke and was chair of the DSM-4 task force. Marvin describes the evolution of his psychotherapy orientation as psychodynamic, behavioral, CBT, and eventually integrative. He practices, teaches, and supervises what works clinically using direct and indirect evidence base. Alan describes his approach to psychotherapy as whatever works or no one size fits all. He was trained and taught at the Columbia University Psychoanalytic Center, but remains equally interested in brief, supportive, cognitive, behavioral, interpersonal, and family therapies. Please enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to Talking Therapy with Marvin Goldfried and my good friend and colleague, Alan Francis. So today, Alan, let's let's talk about case formulation, which is a kind of it's a topic very, very dear to my heart because I first wrote about that, believe it or not, in 1968, uh, when behavior therapy was first on the scene, talking about case formulation. People are now starting to talk about it with different language. But let me just say one thing. I think we were we've forgotten about case formulation during the 40 years of wandering in the desert with clinical trials, um, because clinical trials didn't require any case formulation. It required following the manual. So a lot of people learning therapy from the manual felt, well, here's what you do. And I think finally we're back to the, to the recognition that this is really an essential component of, uh, of any intervention. You know about that, you wrote the book on it, right? Also, an anecdote, when we were coming close to finishing DSM-4, there was a lot of criticism that it was just diagnosis and there was no formulation involved. And of course, that was the purpose of DSM-4. We had the idea, actually, I had the idea that we do a, a companion volume on formulation that would discuss formulation from each of the different therapy orientations. Bob Spitzer loved the idea. It was going to be called Project Flower, Let 100 Flowers Bloom. Uh We developed a table of contents. We began to think about who the contributors would be for the different areas. Yeah. And and then the project just died. We ran out of steam. We were tired and we never got to it. So it's unfortunate that we didn't give, because DSM became so popular, formulation in in effect was being second rated. And it's unfortunate we didn't give it the attention we should have. Right. Science marches on, right? Yeah. Or well, marches all, the, Sometimes Matt marches backwards. But. Yeah, and marches or stands still. Basically, you know, there's more money to be made in selling DSM books than in selling case formulation books. But in any event, not to go into too much detail on that, there are so many. Here we have a language problem again. What do we mean by case formulation? Well, different schools, different approaches have different ways of labeling it. So classically, it's the psychodynamics or the dynamics or the dynamic focus or the core conflictual relationship themes. From a behavioral point of view, it's a functional analysis, a behavioral analysis, or in uh, DBT, it's chaining, or in other forms of therapy, it's situational analysis. But, But what it is basically, is in this, it fits in so nicely to what all therapies do 
when they get the person to become aware of something. So what, what should people become aware of? And I would suggest that all therapists, regardless of orientation, get them to become aware of those factors that are going on in their life that are causing them problems. It could be the external situation. It could be their thinking, their expectations, their feelings, their behavior, their intentions, how they impact on other people. And these are, we can consider these links, okay? Problematic links. All therapies get the patient to focus on problematic links. What, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, I, I, the thing I love about this is it, it's experience close. The mm. theories tend to be so abstract that it's hard to picture the patient in the theory. Right. You lose the, you lose the patient when you're thinking about what each school is propounding. But this way of looking at formulation brings it close to each individual and brings them to where they're at at the moment they walk. Usually a person comes into our office in the worst day of their life or one of the worst days. And you're bringing out what it is that you want to find out about what's making it the worst day. Right, right. So what are some of the links you want to break? Well, from a cognitive or CBT point of view or a cognitive point of view, you want to break the link between the external situation and the thoughts. Because how the person is perceiving either explicitly or implicitly can have important, uh, an important effect on their emotional reaction which can cause them to be, behave in a problematic way. So in relationships, you misperceive the motive of the other person. Oh, he did that or she did that because she or he is basically selfish. And I'm going to get back at my partner. So there are a series of links of an external situation where the partner says something or does something, how it's perceived, how the person has an emotional reaction, the impact, the, the way it colors the person's behavior, the impact it makes on the other person, which can get them to be selfish or appear in a, behave in a way that's selfish. And then the patient says, ah, see, he, she has got that problem. So a goal of therapy is to get them to see, increasing awareness, get them to become, and I know you don't like this term, but I'm going to use it anyway, um, consciously incompetent, having them become aware of their problematic links. So far, so good? Yeah, and just to put two other words on it, yeah. to break the vicious cycles, yeah. to stop the self-fulfilling prophecies. Well, um, it's interesting you use that word, the self-fulfilling prophecy, because that is a basic research concept that's come out of basic research on social psychology, which then should inform therapists about what to do. Therapists need to know about relevant basic research, and self-fulfilling prophecy is, is one of them. Um, misattribution of motive. I'm angry at this other person, not because of what she did, but why I think she did it. And if my conception of why she did it is erroneous, then I have a maladaptive link between her statement and my interpretation. So the goal of therapy is very simply 
to break the link, to get them to become aware of, break the link, and replace it with a more appropriate link. Now, it sounds very cold and sterile and all, but it, it, I'm doing this deliberately because there's no jargon here. Yeah, and breaking that link also goes to what we've discussed before, a corrective emotional experience. Right. After you, exactly. And that is where the person becomes consciously competent, having become aware that they're misinterpreting the other person's motive. Then they try out an alternate interpretation with the assistance of the therapist who, who helps them to see there's another way to look at things. And in a sense, this looking at this offering the person to look at things in, in, a, in a different way, in a way, is, is a promissory note. What, what do you mean? It means it's possible that the reason your partner is not reacting to you in a positive way is because you have a tone of voice when you ask for something, because you're annoyed, because you are interpreting her his motive in a certain way, so you're annoyed. And that person then may be reacting to your tone of voice rather than them just being a selfish person. Okay? That's, that's the I word. You know the I word? Interpretation. If you use that word for, uh, to CBT people, they will, you know, be up in arms and have an emotional reaction to that. So what you need to do is you need to use their language of, well, there's a core belief, a misconception that needs to be corrected and a schema change. Well, you know, you use the jargon and then the cognitive therapist or the cognitive behavior therapist will be able to be calmer and, and feel less upset because at least you're talking their language. So the problem is that we have too many languages describing the same phenomena, very much complementary way, but because the jargons are unfamiliar to people in other schools, it leads to a Tower of Babel. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and it's interesting, if you put things in a more neutral language, and we, we are in the process of conducting some, a couple of colleagues uh, in Ireland, from Ireland and myself are, uh, have been uh, conducting a, a survey where we use a more neutral language about principles of change. And we ask therapists, and so far we have over 900 therapists reactions. So we're trying to, trying to break that ceiling and get into a thousand before we write it up for publication. Um, we asked them about, you know, does this principle of change in a neutral language characterize what you do? And what we find is that there's very, very high agreement, very high agreement. Um, there's, much, there's much more similarity in what people do than what they think they do or the theories they, they think they're following or that they teach others to follow. Right. But, but we have to be very careful because what they do may be a technique that is specific to a certain orientation. So cognitive therapists and, and some CBT therapists uh, like to have people keep thought records where they'll write down uh, an event and their emotional reaction, 
What was the thought that may have been contributing to this emotional reaction? What can be another way to think about it? And when you think about it this other way, what happens to that original emotional reaction? So you could look at that and say, well, you know, I don't do that kind of therapy. Um, I don't have them do these homework sheets and things like that. Um, we talk. What do we talk about? We talk about the same exact thing. So to say, you know, it's, we all do the same thing. We really don't all do the same thing if we look at technique. But if we look at the principle, yeah, yeah, we do uh, look at that kind of thing. Well, I think one way of thinking about this, I always say that I don't trust a clinician who only knows DSM. And I also don't trust a clinician who doesn't know DSM. You need to have a diagnosis because that describes how the individual person is like other people, how their symptoms are similar to other people's symptoms. You need to have formulation because that's how this person is unique, what's specific to them. And then you have different techniques to approach the problem. The problems are going to be very personal and individual at the formulation level. They'll be very generic at the diagnostic level. And there'll usually be a variety of different techniques that may be suitable for dealing with the problem with different clinicians having preferences. But I think every clinician should have within their toolkit all the techniques that have been found to be useful. No, I, I don't disagree with that. But the thing that rubs me the wrong way, and, and you know, maybe it's, it's the word, is the term diagnosis. Because the way it's been used over the past 40 years, essentially, is DSM. So what do you mean by diagnosis? Well, in other words, you could have 93 different ways for someone to present with the, the five of eight criteria, whatever, for borderline personality disorder. Okay. The people who present with obsessive compulsive disorder are very heterogeneous. Yeah. Diagnosis is useful, I think, because it helps to guide which particular treatments are most likely to be helpful, which not. But it will never tell you enough about the individual patient to actually help you decide what to do and say next in the room. So I see the diagnosis as providing a kind of general statement that's very useful to have. You wouldn't want to miss the fact that the person might meet criteria for obsessive compulsive disorder or yeah. schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. That's valuable information that should be saved, but you wouldn't base your whole treatment plan on the diagnosis because it's not nearly specific enough to the problems each person presents with. Well, I, I think we differ here. Um, and obviously, if we differ, it means you're wrong and I'm right. I think at least I've heard you say that, so I'm assuming it's true, except that I'm the one who's right and you're the one who's wrong. <laughs> before diagnosis, before clinical trials, we used to do outcome research. Um, and we didn't need diagnosis. We did research on lack of assertiveness, which we were able to describe but it wasn't a clinical syndrome. It was much more of a focal problem. The thing with diagnosis and particularly DSM is you're not treating any problems, you're treating a concept. And it's a lousy concept because it's heterogeneous. Yeah, and, but, and, but Marvin, here's where you're, where I think you're gonna admit that 
you're not fixed to what you just said. Lack of assertiveness is going to be a lot different in someone who also meets criteria for schizophrenia versus someone who also meets criteria for bipolar disorder versus someone who also meets criteria for personality disorder versus someone who also meets criteria for um, anxiety disorder. That lack of assertiveness is a symptom that can present in so many different disorders and the overall treatment of lack of assertiveness will be different depending on the context of the other symptoms that are also present. But why do we have to talk about symptoms? You see, this is this is your medical background versus my psychological background. In medicine, obviously, you you look for the symptomatology because that will inform your treatment. From a more psychological point of view, at least my psychological point of view, I look for variables that are relevant. So the extent to which somebody has difficulty in conceptualizing, and that may be because they're one DSM disorder or, or another, if they have difficulty in conceptualizing, I will need to adjust my intervention for an individual who has difficulty in conceptualizing. I translate the components in your DSM into variables, personal variables, and then make adjustments in the intervention based on the person. Yeah, but sure, Marvin, but if, if the lack of assertiveness is part of an overall picture that we call schizophrenia with delusions, intermittent hallucinations, um, troubles in all sorts of life's functionings. Okay, yeah. You're going to deal very differently with it than if it's lack of assertiveness in someone who's very high functioning, maybe with, with a slight okay. personality disorder. You see what I mean? The, the diagnosis does tell you something of value. For certain types of diagnoses. Other types of diagnoses, it's junk. The diagnosis of social phobia or social anxiety disorder is, is it's a terrible diagnosis. It is so heterogeneous and the interventions can vary depending upon the, the characteristics within, within that. Well, I guess my position, which I think is the middle position, therefore the right position, is that um, you wouldn't ever want to treat just the diagnosis because that's so heterogeneous, has such fuzzy boundaries. On the other hand, you wouldn't want to treat just the symptom or just the presentation in that individual because the context of the diagnosis is very informative about which, which techniques are safe, which techniques are usable, which techniques are desirable, and which aren't. And, you know, you have someone who's lacks of assertiveness in, in, in a schizophrenia picture, you're going to do very different things. Okay, when, so let's suppose I, I agree that diagnosis of certain kinds of syndromes are relevant. But I think it's, I think it's been overdone. And it's sure. been overdone to sell books. It's been overdone to sell drugs. Sure. Now, DSM has certainly been oversold and overbought. But the my position, I think your position too, Marvin, would be that you, you don't want to just base your treatment on the DSM diagnosis, that you need a formulation that's much more personal to, to that individual in the room with you. Yeah. On the other hand, I wouldn't want to do start from scratch with, you, with each person without knowing the context that would lead to a diagnosis because the diagnosis would condition what's possible, what's needed, what patients generally respond All to. Right. I, 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 I clearly have an, an adverse emotional reaction 
to diagnosis and particularly to DSM. I like you as a person and I forgive you for DSM-4. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but I, I think you have redeemed yourself by speaking up and, and letting us know that, that you have doubts as well. We, well, I think, I, but I think Marvin, you have to redeem yourself and recognize so? that you don't treat people just based on symptoms. Yes, but let me let me give you, give you some examples. We did research in the, in the seventies. We did it on such things as lack of assertiveness. We did it on on things um, public speaking anxiety. Research has been done on perfectionism. These are all factors. Let me guess, Marvin. I'll bet the research was done on pretty healthy people. Yes, but that doesn't mean it could. Yeah, it means a lot. Yes, that's right. Okay, it was an earlier generation of research, and we used college students. There you oh, go. Right, but then you what just, happened? There was you a, just the, proved my point, Marvin. Well, no, there was a then. Then there was a leap. We 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 said we were told you can't get any grant funding if you use college students. You've got to use real patients. Who wait? There's more. And you need a DSM diagnosis. So it came as a package. So we could no longer do the kind of research we were doing, which was research that was helpful to the practicing clinician, because practicing clinicians deal with patients who, are, who can't speak up in their own behalf, who are perfectionistic. Uh, this, is the, this is what goes on. This is, this is the, the way therapists think. Um, they may think with, with jargon, um, but basically these are the concepts that are much more relevant to the practicing clinician than, than diagnosis. Well, I agree. If you're dealing with basically fairly healthy people, then the symptom level is fine. They're coming oh. in with specific problems. But okay. the more you get into populations that are clinical and the more the problems that people present with are really impairing, the, the more diagnosis becomes relevant. Well, okay, like borderline is a messy diagnosis, right? Right. Right. So if you take the characteristics of the individual and you look at that and they say, okay, there's emotional dysregulation, um, there's this, there's that, we're going to then treat that. Interventions yeah, really don't treat borderline, they don't treat yeah. the diagnosis, they treat the characteristics of the It's a really interesting point because we both had close contact with Marshall Linehan. You, yeah. you trained her and I edited her, her, her books. And so we both have a feeling for how DBT impacts right. on. Yeah. And it's very interesting. She originally didn't want to be using the term borderline. It makes your point that she wanted to be dealing with parasuicidal behavior, right. much more symptomatic behavior. She yeah. couldn't get funding. No, no, that's that's let me correct that slightly. You you close, but no cigar. She didn't want to use the term personality because the way we trained people back then is that there was no such thing as personality. This was a reaction against the psychodynamic. There was only behavior. So it was parasuicidal behavior. So right. and 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 she didn't know about borderline as, as well. So. Yeah, so we we partly on we were both on the committee that did the funding. Yeah, that we, I know I spoke to her at the time and said you'll never get through the committee on parasuicidal behavior yes. on the system. Right. The way to get through this committee is to call it borderline personality disorder. Right. And there were enough yeah. overlaps so that she did that. Now 
you could make the argument that that was a terrible mistake on her part. Well, I don't think so. No, not necessarily. You know, it served a function. It got her money the same way that when we put in an insurance form and we give a diagnosis, it serves a function, but a monetary more, function. Marvin, it also did more than that. It made what would have been a very narrowly targeted treatment to just one specific problem. It made it, it pushed her to broaden the treatment to take into account the other symptoms that often were part of the presentation and people, and admittedly the term borderline personality disorder is a horrible term. It's a very heterogeneous category. It's been stigmatized, but the value in, in seeing it as a diagnosis was to broaden her treatment so that it could help lots more people. Right. I, I don't disagree with that, but what I'm saying, I guess, bottom line, before we finish time to move on, time to move on and look to see where we do have, you know, ex as you put it, experience near agreement, where things are close to clinical observations, they may be called other things. But, and, and getting back to the term case formulation, the latest term is personalization of therapy, because the younger generation is recognizing that following a manual with a DSM diagnosis, the one size fits all, um, the fit may not be really good, but one size fits all, uh, is insufficient for clinical work. So personalization now is the, quote, the hot new topic. Yeah, but I guess what I'm saying is I don't see there being any incompatibility between diagnosis and formulation. I don't see either as being sufficient by itself. Well, you know... What about? Let me just say, go ahead. I can't imagine. Suppose we're treating the person who has passivity problems. I can't imagine that my behavior wouldn't be different if those passivity problems are part of schizophrenia versus bipolar disorder versus an executive who comes in and is having trouble conducting a meeting but otherwise functions great in his life. That the context in which the the diagnostic context in which the specific symptom presents itself can't be just thrown out because it does have tremendous um, information value in planning what happens next. If you're only seeing pretty healthy people, and many psychologists see mostly pretty healthy people, this value falls away. People are coming well, in much more for specific symptoms. But if you're working in a psychiatric clinic, when you're seeing people who have really pretty severe problems, then the diagnostic distinctions become much more valuable. Well, I think maybe another podcast should deal with the work that's being done on high top. I don't know it in great detail. I don't know if, if you know yeah, enough. I'm to, familiar with it. Yeah. Uh, so, we, you know, we just, wrote a, we just wrote a paper reviewing it. Okay. Well, that'll be good. We should, we should do that. But either, either you, you know, then you can take the lead on that or we can bring somebody in as a consultant and third person who's doing this kind of stuff um, and, and, and talk about that. Is that diagnosis? Uh, sure it is. I think without getting into great detail, at this point, it's probably way too complicated to be helpful to most clinicians. Okay. Well, it's, it's in its early stages. Yeah. And DSM is way too heterogeneous to be helpful. <laughs> no, you're, you're, Marvin, that, that, that's just wrong. Okay. <laughs> it, it, it's way too heterogeneous to be helpful alone. It's still very valuable as a step then to be added to with formulation.
So DSM by itself is helpful in its own way, but limited because the things are so heterogeneous. Well, on the other hand, on the other hand, without DSM, formulations can hang in the air and ignore all the other contextual factors that may be very important in deciding what to do next. Well, but ITOP may provide those contextual. May not, but if you're dealing with people who have really severe problems, you can't ignore them and just focus on the one symptom. Okay, so I would, would say that maybe some very severe pathology, very severe pathology, and probably it's the kind of pathology where there's a heavy genetic physiological component uh, ideologically. Um, but I think to talk about all problems. Yeah, but but most of the patients I've seen in my life were like that. Few of the patients I've seen in my, and that's why you're, and that's why you're a real doctor and I'm not. Well, I'm saying like I had a private practice with basically healthy people where formulation might work, but yeah. I also worked in clinic settings with hundreds and thousands of patients where it wouldn't be enough. Okay. Well, fair point. Fair point. Okay. So Interesting discussion. Yeah. Um, to be continued. I, and I think, I think this does deal with an important misunderstanding partly between psychiatry and psychology between psychiatry and psychoanalysis. It, it, so much of what you believe depends on the patients you see. Yep, I totally agree. Um, well, maybe, maybe that's a good way to end it. I mean, we could go on, but but I'm afraid yeah. it would, it would and, and I'd like to hear more about formulation because I was really enjoying that. We just really began on that. I think we should devote more time to that in the future. We can do that as long as, as long as we could do this, we can do that too. <laughs> okay. Have a good Thanks, week, Marvin. You Bye -bye. too. Bye-bye.